Republican. Finally, we'll meet a woman who has been sitting outside the White House for a very long time. For these reasons and many more, we invite you to listen this Friday at 7 p.m. on Full Circle, 94.1 KPSA. You are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover, an open book. Good afternoon, and welcome to Friday's Cover to Cover open book. Today, we bring you an interview with Winona LeDuc. Winona comes from the Mississippi band of Anishinaabeg, also known as Ojibwe, and is the mother of three children. She is a program director of Honor the Earth and the founding director of White Earth Land Recovery Project located on the White Earth Reservation in Minnesota. Leading Honor the Earth, LeDuc provides vision and leadership for the organization's regranting program and its strategic initiatives. In addition, she has worked for two decades on the land issues of the White Earth Reservation, including litigation over land rights in the 1980s. In 1989, LeDuc received the Reebok Human Rights Award, with which, in part, she began the White Earth Land Recovery Project. In 1994, she was nominated by Time Magazine as one of America's 50 most promising leaders under 40 years of age and was also awarded the Thomas Merton Award in 1996, the Anne Bancroft Award, the 1997 Ms. Woman of the Year Award, the Global Green Award, and numerous other honors. In both 1996 and 2000, LeDuc ran for vice president on the Green Party ticket with Ralph Nader. A graduate of Harvard and Antioch universities, she has written extensively on Native American and environmental issues. Her books include Last Standing Woman, All Our Relations, In the Sugar Bush, and The Winona LaDuke Reader. Her latest book, Recovering the Sacred, The Power of Naming and Reclaiming, has just been released by South End Press. She was here in the Bay Area a few weeks ago, and I was able to ask her a few questions. I started with asking her what sacred means to her. You know, when I was started looking at this, I mean, I think you can't quantify sacred. It's part of the challenge, and, and particularly I started around the issues of sacred sites and the idea that there are, you know, for communities there are these wellsprings where they return to to reaffirm their relationship to the Creator. And Native people, you know, freedom of religion was not recognized for Native people until 1978 in this country with the passage of the American Indian Religious Freedom Act. But at the same time, you know, if you want to engage in your religious practices and you want to go to a place that they want to mine or they want to uh, put up a golf course or they want to put up a shooting range, they, want, they will ask you, how sacred is it? Is it sacred all year round? Is it sacred, you know, at some times? Um, can we do these other things in this same place? I mean, you know, this is quantifying of the sacred. And so that is a little bit of what I started uh, to talk about. And then I wanted to talk in the book, I talked about the recovery of ancestors and uh, repatriation issues as part of how you recover yourself. Um, and you recover things that um, are a part of this sacred relationship and then I talked about foods, 
because uh, our foods are sacred foods. In our case, it is wild rice. It's one of the, it's, it is who we are as Anishinaabeg people. It's very much a, a centerpiece of our identity. And so uh, what I wanted to explore is that recovering of your relationship to your humanity and how that is a part of this larger uh, world that is both mountains and foods and ancestors and relatives who may have wings or fins and how that whole recovery of that is part of recovering your humanity. And so that is what I uh, was interested in writing about in the book and I kind of wandered through Indian country and and uh, talked to a lot of people. But I think, to be really honest with you, I think that is a little bit where we are as humans today is we are so alienated. Uh, you know, we are in, you know, in climate-controlled worlds and malls and monocropped cultures and um, monocropped foods. And we say it is not a nice day out if it is awan, if it is foggy. You know, so I think that uh, the questions I was asking about the Native community are kind of American questions in a way. I was reading The Three Sisters, one of the stories. It reminds me of my people and where they grow the corn exactly with the calabaza and the frijoles. And it just it just transcends a lot of any one people. No, that's right, especially those foods. And I think that, you know, what I was interested in is like in the era of the creation of these monocrops of Roundup Ready, the industrializing of everything, how industrialization of food systems uh, removes relationship to food and how you see these communities that are going back and growing these foods back out and are uh, you know, having this, the same ceremony that they had for a really long time and in that process are recovering not only their relationship but also are recovering their health because those old foods, those heirloom varieties, which, to be honest, it seems like you're seeing more and more of just in a farmer's market, thankfully. This kind of rankling against globalization with the relocalization and the recovery of that which is essential seeds saved for a thousand years. It turns out those have higher amino acids, have more antioxidants, you know, um, more special things that have long names. <laughs> <laughs> that are really good for you. I mean, they just, they were talking about the you know the you know the different um, amino acids, and they're just getting really you know. But all I knew is that they were what you wanted, you know, in the end of the chemical analysis. So. That's true. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting to me how you could breed plants for forty years for industrialized food production for green giant, and grow it out in a field that is monocropped. And they but what they bred for was productivity, and they bred for appearance and they bred for taste and they bred for its resilience to different pests so in the process of that breeding they lost like 90 percent of the amino acids in some of these foods and this nutritional value and so what you know the in in this time and what i see in a lot of these indigenous communities is this recovery of those seeds and the truth is between you and I, and I think you know whoever else is listening, is that is that those micro those foods grown in microclimates are actually the foods you're going to need in a time of global climate destabilization, because they are specific to microclimates and they are more adaptable than a monocrop. And so that is what I mean. Is like a lot of times Native people or Indigenous people, you know, we're viewed as kind of folkloric, uh, 
and our behavior and in our foods and isn't that interesting how those people like those old things and you know but if progress or you know it's so inconvenient but you know in the end you know what i have come to look you know understand in in doing this work is that um a lot of those are the foods actually of the future if you want to be eaten you know you better not be knowing where those foods are and knowing those seeds and making sure someone doesn't patent them you know or own them all i wanted to talk about the relaxed attitude towards honoring the indigenous sacredness right because the government wouldn't ask well catholics do they always need a church you know do they do jews always need a synagogue you know those questions wouldn't be asked and i just wanted to get if you could elaborate a little bit in terms of the inherent arrogance if you will towards the the cultures that were in this land you know i think that foundationally you have a legal system you know for instance i was talking to a friend of mine a lawyer uh, but you know, you, ha you have illegal institutions in the United States which were founded on English, you know, British common law, which were founded on papal law. And papal law, and the papal bulls, you know, in the, in the 1400s, viewed non-Christians as having lesser rights than Christians. And so you have this perception that you know essentially christian or judeo-christian systems have preeminent rights in this country and that is why native free exercise of religion wasn't recognized until 1978 about 200 years after the country was founded on principles of religious freedom and so i think that there is foundationally in the law a set of perceptions that do not recognize native religious freedom and so then, you know, where we sit today, I think it is worth asking how you build a multicultural democracy. And should we all have religious freedom? And we should ask questions like, who has a monopoly on religious freedom? Or who has a monopoly on saying that they have, you know, that they have faith? Which is obviously what the Christian right has done. And, you know, what I say in very conservative audiences in northern Minnesota or elsewhere is that I'm not a Christian. But my faith is as significant as anyone else's, and I think that I should have the same rights as as anyone else. And so I think that um, part of what, you know, I am asking or part of what I, I hear a lot of Native people asking is, um, what is sacred? You know, how do we redefine that in relationship to this democracy, to this land? The suggestion that a holy land is not an exclusive concept. There is not one place that is a holy land, that the holy land is also here. You know, it is Medicine Rock in Northern California. It is, you know, the place, you know, it is, it is the places where they want to put geothermal sites in California or where they want to carve off the top of a mountain. You know, those are also sacred places here. And, and uh, if you really want to have a society that is multicultural and, and, then you need to look at that. But more than that, to be honest with you, is I think that America has to, as a society, redefine its relationship to this land. Because this land has always been looked at as not the holy land. You know, the holy land is someplace else, and we just live here and have this relationship which is utilitarian, where we take things from this land and build empire. Instead of that, you know, this is also a sacred place. And if you want to live here for a long time, you better get used to that it is sacred. And you better define a relationship and a set of legal institutions that recognize and, and honor those relations. You're listening to Winona LaDuke, 
we're talking about her latest book, Recovering the Sacred, The Power of Naming and Reclaiming, as well as her work with the White Earthland Recovery Project. I'm Amelia Gonzalez. You mentioned the significance of historically what has grown in, in different areas and microclimates. I think that a lot of times people see it as the an economic solution or survival solution, but but you, especially in the White Earth Reservation, it's it's beyond that. It's more than than just the economic reality or survival or sustainability. It's your history. Yeah, I mean, in the case of my reservation, we have a very lush ecosystem of um, 47 lakes, a large amount of wild rice, which is a part of our oral tradition and our uh, migration story. We're told to go to the place where the food grows upon the water, which was wild rice. And um, so for 5,000, 10,000 years, we have lived in this place and we have danced that rice. We have harvested it. We have an entire um, calendar based on moons like Menominee-Gizis, which is the wild rice moon. Nemebinegizis, when the suckers move. You know, Odeminegizis, when the strawberries arrive. You know, Gashkadnogizis, when it freezes over, which is a little bit different than a Julius Caesar calendar. You know, and so I, I like to think about that because I think that how we frame our reality and what we allow to frame our reality, I think, affects our perception of where we are. And so industrializing our minds, industrializing our sense of time, of place, so alienates us. So our community, um, you know, we're, we're kind of the biggest reservation in Minnesota and have everything you don't want to have, you know, in terms of economic and political and health and Indians in prison, <laughs> you know, and so what are you going to do? You know, we could wring our hands and say, uh, sucks to be us, you know, or you could say, well, let's, let us, let us look at what we have and make something that is what we want to be. Let us be about self-determination, you know, instead of letting someone else determine our future, let us be the ones who determine that. So how do you go about that? You know, in our case, this recovery of food systems is about, uh, recovery of our health because we fight diabetes by eating our own foods and not eat, shopping at Walmart and eating badly. I'm on a, I've been on a Walmart fast. I'm doing really well so far. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which is kind of a challenge uh-huh. at times, particularly if you're on the go. I mean, I know that out here, your your you know listenership is is politically correct, and you don't do that. But, you know, I just the the food is about recovering this essential relationship. And then it is also about, you know, I mean, and out here, you guys have done a lot of really good stuff, like in school districts and everything, of getting them to look at organic and buy local. You know, and so that is part of what we are looking at, too, in our community. But just kind of decolonizing your tastes, you know, and moving to your, to your traditional foods is a lot of what our interest is in. So we give a lot of elderly diabetics, 170 elderly diabetic families, we give them traditional foods every month. And we're working on the... Uh, the uh, elderly nutrition program and the Head Start programs, getting them to eat traditional foods. But um, that so our our work in our community, it's at a local level, is how you provide for local needs and you know both turn you know money over to support local farmers. But I think more than that also is how you you know re-establish uh, 
your local food systems, which are also like you give food to elderlies. You know, you don't make them. I mean, you know, it's like these things you're supposed to do in a community that now, you know, then you're taking Medicare to wear from elderlies or whatever. You know, it's just like so backwards on how you're supposed to do things. So I started with that. And then uh, our our larger issues are, you know, we do basic infrastructure issues. You know, I was out here visiting with you guys a little bit about uh, radio, but we don't even have phones about probably a third of our people don't even have a phone, you know, because everything's long distance on our reservation. You know, in the non-Indian towns that border the reservation, it's local. But there's five prefixes on the reservation, and they're pretty much all long distance. And so it's, it's uh, economically impossible, you know, for a person to have a phone if you're way below the poverty level because you can't run up your phone bill, you know. So we're going to the Public Utilities Commission to try to reestablish and just have it one phone, you know, not one prefix, but local area for the whole reservation. Then we're going to do, of course, the reservation phone book, which we thought would be fun where you could have everybody's nickname in it, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> so you could actually find them, you know, and you say, where's Twinch, you know, <laughs> Crusher, Crusher, now what was Crusher's number, you know, you should have like some, you know, I really wanted to have like a local directory assistance where you could ask, what was his cousin's name again, you know, uh-huh. you know, like that, which should be real. You know, because that's what you kind of need, because nobody, I don't know how it is in other communities, but until someone heads to the spirit world, a lot of times you don't actually know their real name until you read the obituary, you know, and then you're like, oh, that was his name. So uh, we do that, and then, uh, you know, a lot of our work around food, you know, um, we, you know, one of our biggest campaigns is our our, uh, rice campaign. I'll talk about that in a second, but then the other thing as far as infrastructure is wind energy. Um, a good portion of our reservation, as I said, has lakes on it, and a lot of those lakes have fish consumption advisories from heavy metals and mercury, which most lakes in the country do at this point. But, you know, us, like this last week before I came out here, we, the way we, our family fishes is we net. And uh, so you're going to get your mercury levels too high if you are a subsistence fishing person in, in one of those lakes. So the way to fight that is... Uh, you got to fight coal-fired power plants because you can't clean up the lakes if you're going to keep dumping into them. So we decided to uh, fight them by putting up wind turbines. And uh, it turns out our reservation, it actually turns out that Indian reservations, I don't know how this worked out, but Indian reservations are the windiest place in the country. You know, we just, <laughs> just got all that windy land somehow. You know, but that, you know, in this day and age when, you know, world oil production just peaked and... Uh, you know, you got to start looking for some options, and they better not be nuclear. You know, what, you know the Bush, Bush administration plan is so pathetic, of course. But, you know, you've got immense wind power. You know, and even here in California, you've got some good wind power potential. And, and uh, you know, you could even, you know, to the extent you get power lines, you could ship. It'd be a lot better to, to bring in wind power than to bring in coal out of the southwest, you know, which is what they're doing now if they're not doing nukes. It's, you know, the pathetic state. But so we put up one wind turbine couple years ago on our reservation and now uh we're looking at uh some more small scale because i'm a big proponent of small scale micro you know if you're a farmer or you know you live in a you should just have your own darn wind turbine you know and then but then we're looking at commercial you know for our tribal facilities larger and then we're looking at uh um you know we got enough wind to actually commercially sell wind in the state of minnesota so you know, here I am, you know, I'm 46. I didn't really, I can, I can balance my checkbook, but now I'm looking at raising like 10, 15, 20 million dollars, you know, 
we have some smart partners, fortunately, but, you know, I don't, don't, you know, but it's like, you know, you know, when you're a community organizer, you spend a lot of time, like, you know, managing the budgets of organizations. Ours is pretty big now, not nearly as big as, you know, your radio station, but, you know, got a million dollar budget. And, um, you know, so we, we survive at that. You keep growing and then now, but, you know, if you want to do some of this stuff, you got to move into that level. So that's what we're doing. So you're here. You're here visiting in California, and I wanted to ask you what what was the purpose of the visit because I know it's very much tied to the work that you're doing, and I know that you're very concerned about some of the patents that are being released, such as two, I believe, have been released by NorCal. Aside from um, coming out here to do some other fantastic work and meet the great Garcia family and and tool along with my four boys here. We came out here because uh, we want to talk to the wild rice producers of California. Our reservation and our area is the mother load of wild rice and it's the only uh, wild rice that grows in the world. It's the only indigenous grain to North America. And as I said, we followed it in our migration story. It's a sacred food to us. We use it for all our feasts and our ceremonies, and it sustains us. We eat really a lot of rice. So we harvest that rice in Manoma and Kegesis, the wild rice moon. We go out with two sticks in a canoe, and we uh, knock the rice, and we bring it in and parch it by wood fire and uh, winnow it, and, you know, and we eat it, and then we market it. You know, we sell a lot of wild rice as it's kind of an issue of fair trade, on some level, you know, similar to coffee, as we believe that if you knock that rice, you should get a good price for it. And so at Trader Joe's and these other stores, by and large, they aren't selling hand-harvested rice. And people are paying a pretty good price for rice. And, you know, so we want to um, kind of build the economy of our tribal communities, some of it on rice, because we got millions of pounds of wild rice. You know, this is not like, I don't want to misrepresent our situation. We have a lot of rice. Not, we don't have the 15 million pounds that they produce in Northern California. But our... Our concern is this, is that in uh, the past, in the past uh, 40 years, they figured out how to domesticate wild rice in Minnesota. They, you know, started growing it in diked rice paddies using chemicals and fertilizers, developed some seed varieties, and were really proud of themselves, really started selling it as a gourmet product. Uncle Ben's and these guys made a really a lot of money on it. And then it worked so good that California took over the rice industry. So now three-quarters of all wild rice that's on the shelf is coming from California. And uh, the California rice producers have, you know, different things going for them. But what our main concerns are, are two. One is patents. A a company in Northern California, NorCal Wild Rice, Ken Foster, um, is the guy who's patented wild rice. And I understand, actually, he used USDA funds, which I don't know how that works. You get USDA money, and then you get to go and privatize your patent it's an interesting question that's my understanding and i'm looking for a little a little clarification of that but um what i do know is that uh they have some patents and i'm someone who believes our community believes that the word patent shouldn't be associated with the word wild rice like what would be the point and the problems with patents i think most people know is that it's a property right so if someone decides to grow in northern minnesota a patented variety of wild rice and it's grown next to one of our natural lake stands right now the preponderance of the law the property rights are on the side of the patent holder if it if it um you know has plant sex and gets over in our rice you know so we oppose that the other thing we oppose is genetic engineering and uh, it hasn't yet happened california has a big anti-ge campaign but what we are trying to do is to um um, ensure that nobody ever genetically engineers wild rice. 
because if they genetically engineer wild rice in California, um, the chances of that getting to Minnesota are pretty good because they ship millions of pounds of wild rice into Minnesota to um, get it processed and stamped Minnesota processed, I assume, as part of the, the marketing strategy. Um, so you got the potential for, you know, out here. So I, I went wandering up in Northern California. I met Indian Harvest uh, Wild Rice, which we always had a little problem with the name. Uh, a bunch of Dutch guys, nice guys, really nice Dutch guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. I even have a new Indian Harvest hat and a new cup. Uh-huh. But uh, but those guys have patty rice. And uh, I talked to them and said, please don't, you know, genetically engineer rice. And they said, well, we're mostly just processed, but you know, we don't have a market for it. And we went over to uh, um, Gibbs Wild Rice, asked them the same thing. I think they're one of the largest producers. And they said that they weren't planning on doing it, but they did, you know. And and then we went to Lundberg, who is the big uh, organic guy. Really a nice guy. All really nice guys, actually. But Lundberg, we, he let us ride around. Not ride around, we got to look at his combine. It was very exciting. But he said that they, you know, they're totally opposed to it. But what we're really trying to do, um, we need to get the industry out here, too. You know, we talked to some individuals and really pleaded with them. But we need to get the California rice producers to never gen- to just commit, to never genetically engineer wild rice. We need Davis, you see Davis, to... Uh, just forget about that genetic engineering when they look over towards wild rice. We know they do a lot of it on other things. Just stay away from the rice. You know, because that wild rice, if they do that, you know, you know, I mean, reality is genetic engineering and con- contamination is forever. And so that's why we're out here is to say don't do it. And, uh, and you know, help us out in this because to us it's, it's sacred. And in Minnesota we have a legislative campaign we're seeking to get passed. And, you know, I know there's been this genetic engineering uh, campaigns here in California. Ours is very specific. You know, it is not a total ban on genetically engineered foods. It's only specific to wild rice because it's the only place in the country where you've got a wild crop, you know, wild stands on a lake that grow right next to paddy. And so if they genetically engineer paddy, you know, a domesticated crop, it will contaminate us. And so we're just saying don't do the rice. And so, uh, you know, that's what we're out here doing. And just initial, you know, and you can go, uh, I think it's savewildrice.org. Look us up on the web or Native Harvest, um, White Earth Land Recovery Project. But we have, you know, more literature on it and, you know, really trying to just get people to understand about it. But it's, I think, um, you know, we did it when we started on this work. You know, we just wanted to protect our rice. And, um, and then we got this International Slow Food Award and, 2003 for this campaign to protect our rice and you know I hadn't really thought about the implications but obviously the Indians from India you know pretty much everybody is looking at this question of who has the right to own the seeds and who has the right to change them well we've seen what's happened to the corn industry with that. Yeah, yeah right exactly you know and that's what we want to you know it hasn't happened yet with rice but obviously the interest in rice is you know one of the major crops in the world and wild rice is not genetically related to Japonica or the main rice varieties. It's not genetically related, but it is, you know, it is, um, you know, they are they are doing cross genetic work. Some Australian researchers are already doing it, and because our growing season is shorter, and uh, you know, so there's the potential is there. Right now, the University of Minnesota says they aren't planning on doing it, but they want the right, and that's the problem. As you get into this issue of academic freedom, and uh, you know, I'm a proponent of academic freedom, but. I think that there has to be academic responsibility. And the only case so far that we have that's been good in this has been uh, the 
in Hawaii, the University of Hawaii has signed an agreement that they won't genetically engineer taro because of the cultural significance to Native Hawaiian people. And we think that universities should, should, you know, in the era of, you know, ethics, begin signing these agreements. You just heard the voice of author and longtime activist Winona LaDuke. She was recently in the Bay Area where I was able to interview her about her recent projects and her latest book, Recovering the Sacred, The Power of Naming and Reclaiming by South End Press. For more information about her work, you can go to www.honorearthoneword.org. If you have any questions about what you hear on Cover to Cover Open Book, you can call 510-848-6767, extension 212. With Erica Bridgman at the controls, I'm Amelia Gonzalez. Thank you for listening. got a new Wednesday afternoon schedule on KPFA. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Tune in for Guns and Butter at its new time on Wednesday at 1 p.m. And this is Ross Kadi of the Bay Native Circle. For issues relating to Native peoples in the Bay Area and nationally, tune in every Wednesday at our new time, 2 p.m. And this is Jack Foley. Tune in to Cover to Cover every Wednesday at 3. Poetry, talk, subversion, occasional music. That's Wednesdays at 3. New time. And then at 3.30, Free Speech Radio News for your daily independent international newscast. Four of your favorite shows, all at Brad